0: Out in the Bay receives support from Project Open Hand, whose medically tailored food helps Bay Area residents recover from illness, get stronger, and lead healthier lives. Project Open Hand serves people with HIV AIDS, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and other critical illnesses. Learn more at openhand.org. Welcome to Out in the Bay, queer radio and podcast. My guest this week has written an impressive and insightful novel, a memoir really, he tells me, about his boyhood, growing up black and gay in Baltimore in the 1960s. The book, Dancing to the Lyrics, takes us through his sudden uprooting at age four from small town Ohio to one of Baltimore's poorest neighborhoods where he lives with his young mother, two sisters and a violent stepfather who's abusive to all of them. It takes us through young Grant and sisters finding dead gunshot victims in their neighborhood, massive riots following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and much more.
1: To be honest, when I first saw the white soldiers come into town, I actually thought white people were either on TV or they were foreigners. So when I first saw them, I actually thought we were the Americans and they had invaded us. You know, that's how segregated we were. It's grim
0: in many places,
1: yet ultimately inspiring. It takes us
0: through the strength, confidence, and courage this boy finds en route to manhood, even though we only know him in the book from age four to nine. Dancing to the Lyrics won its author, Dwayne Ratliff, a Best Indie Book Award, in the LGBTQ coming-of-age category. I'm so glad he sent me this book to read and that he's here to talk with us about it. Dwayne Ratliff, welcome to Out in the Bay. And thank you for having me, and thank you for reading it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Dwayne, I'd love it if you could set us up with, um, you know, a a short reading from the book. This is when... uh, little Grant has arrived in Baltimore after his uh, mother suddenly marries some guy he's never seen before. And all of a sudden he's got a stepfather who puts him on a plane, takes him to Baltimore, and then a limousine to their new house.
1: Okay. Uh, The chapter is House of Sufferance. The scene outside the window called my stepfather a liar. The plane and limousine ride could be compared to dressing up dine at a five-star restaurant, only to discover you were destined for a fast food restaurant where the neon lights intermittently flickered on and off, and the establishment was out of everything except rude service. If not for all the promises and buildup from my stepfathers, and if you squinted just a bit, Baltimore could be considered almost beautiful. It had been the second largest port of entry for immigration after Ellis Island, so it was a little warm for wear. She was not a ballroom beauty like her eastern sister boston baltimore was the working class girl who frequented dance halls bought her own beer and asked men to dance most of the buildings were plain 19th century brick or stone and were stacked close together like canned goods in a supermarket concrete and asphalt everywhere assured a tumble by any child ended with a skin knee or elbow east baltimore by developed world standards was poor There were no dead cattle lying in the street or open ditches of raw sewage, spawning periodic plagues to mark it as such, but it was. The brick and stone buildings drooped and sagged in a manner that gave the illusion. The windows and doors were frowning. The front stoops of most houses were made of marble, and were well-tended, and most of the dirt and trash confined to vacant houses and lots, which were tended by no one. Cleanliness was valued and not beyond the means of any of the poor, yet tattered and worn. Were ubiquitous in a place where choices had to be made between bread and repair.
0: Thank you. That's Dwayne Ratliff reading from his book, Dancing to the Lyrics. You you mentioned when we spoke on the phone last week that essentially this is an autobiography. It's your memoir. So ninety five percent of the things actually happened, as you told me. Why did you choose to write the uh, to to write this in the third person?
1: You know, we're talking about Grant instead of hey, you know, I went with my mother um part part of it was out of ignorance personally or myself, i I didn't know how to write. and also because family members wanted me to change the name and make it as appear as as fictitious as possible. you know, and basically, the names have been changed to protect the guilty <laughs> because there were no innocent people. So, um, to be perfectly honest, that was the reason you know, the wishes of other people determined the style that I was going to write in
0: so how did you choose the name dancing to the lyrics what is what does dancing to the lyrics refer to
1: ah it's really funny because i love to destroy stereotypes you know the stereotypes that are i'm african-american and gay must be a fabulous dancer actually i'm i'm a clodhopper, hopper completely a clodhopper. hopper uh so i was dancing and in front of a bunch of people uh, mostly african-american all i'm african-american crowd and this one boy is watching me dance and he goes to his mother. He says, "Mama, he's not dancing to the rhythm." And she said, "Baby, bless his heart. Some people are danced, Some people dance to the lyrics, and that is me. I, I hear, and I think that could be said for a lot of people. We we dance to our own whatever we hear ourselves."
0: And I see the subtitle is uh, "Finding an inner, inner Rhythm," right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important because really, that's what you're all about. It's like outside is noise. You have to listen to it is inside because only you know you. Luckily, I was able to filter out of, out of a lot of the negative stereotypes of being a gay man. Not completely, but yeah, I was able to do some.
0: Do you remember what, what grade you were in when, when Martin Luther King was shot and killed?
1: Oh, it was the third grade. He was killed on my mother's birthday. I remember that clearly.
0: Right. And that's in the book too. So you're sitting down to dinner, you're just about to blow out the candles and all of a sudden the news comes on that Martin Luther King has been shot and killed. Yeah. Can you describe that, that scene?
1: Well, the thing that was really interesting about it is um, that day, and most people don't realize the United States had launched, I forget what Apollo one, I think it was one of the Apollo missions, And it was the highest rocket that had ever been launched. So my day started with being excited by that. And as I write in the book, on that day, America went as high as it ever could, and it also went as low as it ever could in that same day. And although it wasn't apparent to me at the time, um, I'm, I'm still a child, so when my mother blew out the candle, Walter Cronkite came on the news and said, Martin Luther King had been assassinated. And my mother had just blown out the candles, and to me, it was almost like, oh my God, my mother just blew out of life. I mean, you're a child, so... You, your imagination runs really wild. And it was, it, it was just a really surreal scene for me, even this many years later.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. So riots came on, like after that, there were the riots in many cities, but Baltimore is one of them. And a few days later, um, you had armed National Guard troops uh, all over your city, or at least, at least in your neighborhood. Yeah, it was all over the city. Yeah, well, describe that scene. What was that like for you as a kid?
1: Well, it was so funny, and this is where kind of the gay park camp comes in. At first, I was afraid. Uh, we had all got uh, some, so a commander came into the school and ordered us out of school because they were going to use our school to hold looters. So we were ordered out of school before lunch, and I remember we were all, the soldiers were all in the park. Almost all of them were white. As a matter of fact, I think all of them were white. And they had fixed bayonets, and we are scared, all of us were afraid to, Across the park because there were soldiers with bayonet. And, you know, me being the entrepreneurial spirited person I am, I said, if you guys give me your lunch money, because we aren't going to have lunch, I would confront the troops. And I did. And I started yelling at them, telling them to go home. They should be ashamed of themselves for, you know, invading our country. And, and it was so funny because um, that was my day. There was a, a kid in our neighborhood who was a special a needs kid or development developmentally delayed and he was standing by my side and he was yelling at them, telling them go back on TV because white people were only on TV for him. So he was yelling at them to do that. So ironically, it was the developmentally delayed child and the gay child that were standing up to the armed forces moving into our city. You know, I I thought that was actually very interesting because all the other ones were afraid, but it was us who stood up to them. Yeah, that
0: is interesting. That is interesting. So so then you a little bit later, you came back, your you and your mom came back out into the streets to buy to go to the grocery store, forgetting that there was a curfew on. And so you and she have an interaction with this with this young soldier with the bayonet. Can you I think that's a section you're gonna read. You wanna
1: read that little section to us? Yes. We we were running out of food because we were not prepared for the riot. So And the curfew was on. So we walked to the end of our block to go to a store that was certainly not open. But we didn't get that far. As we turned the corner to, to go down North Eden Street, a soldier ordered us to halt. We were held at bayonet point. Current events returned to the forefront. We were in violation of curfew. He seemed just as shocked to see a woman and a child as we were to see a bayonet in our face. Seeing his young face as a child, I saw a grown man. Remembering his face over 50 years later, I saw a boy with a bayonet. He looked out of place in his uniform. With his rosy cheeks, it was almost as if one of Santa's elves had enlisted into the military. The young soldier probably hadn't shaved his face yet. He merely plucked a few hairs, splashed on some aftershave, the alcohol only stinging a few open pores. Furthermore, he didn't appear old enough to even drink alcohol nor was he old enough to vote. Men were dying in Vietnam who could not vote or drink. A few years later, the 26th Amendment would change that, but the amendment could not deliver maturity before it was due. The man was a boy, but he still had the gun. After he told us to halt, he didn't really know what to do with a woman and a child. My mother pressed her advantage and assaulted him with the truth. She told him, how she was not able to shop because the rioting and we were running out of food. The need to feed her family had caused her to momentarily forget there was a curfew. Rumor had it that if you were arrested after curfew, your personal jewelry or watches were confiscated and dumped into a barrel, presumed to be looted items. Seconds into her story, the bayonet dropped from our faith. An unexpected maturity crossed his face as he said, my uniform orders me to do one thing and my conscience another. I joined the guard so I didn't have to kill anyone. I really don't want to be here either. Had no intentions of arresting us. We went from being curfew breakers to a confessional for a soldier from suburbia. He continued, I just want you to know I don't believe all the lies that pass for our history. You have every right to be angry at us and I have no right to tell you how to be angry. Just know that not all of us white people support this. Those of us who don't care, are not yet numerous enough to stop it. My mother nodded and said, I know that, but I can count on one hand the number of white people who have said what you just said and still have fingers left over. It's nice to finally meet another one in person, even if it was at gunpoint. His gun suddenly became an embarrassment to him. The rose on his cheek spread across his entire face. If he could have hid his gun behind his back, he would have. Not knowing what else to do, he bid us farewell by informing us that tonight the Department of Agriculture would be trucking in food and setting up three or four food distribution centers. One of the centers would be not more than 50 yards from where we stood at the corner of East Eager Street. He told us to get there early and before they ran out of food.
0: That's Dwayne Ratliff reading from his uh, memoir novel, Dancing to the Lyrics, Finding an Inner Rhythm. It won a 2021 Best Indie Book Award in the LGBTQ coming-of-age category. You're hearing Out in the Bay. I'm Eric Jansen. Out in the Bay is supported in part by Project Open Hand, providing 2,500 life-saving meals and 200 bags of groceries daily to sustain people experiencing illness, social isolation, or the health challenges of aging. Learn more at openhand.org. Project Open Hand, Meals with Love. I want to know about some of the characters in this book. I mean, I realize now that you've told me this is, you know, this is really your life. So these are real people whose names you've changed. But, you know, there's first of all, there's there's your immediate family, your mother, who I guess had you when she was only 16, probably, if I'm doing the math right.
1: Yeah, actually, she had me when she was 15 and turned 16 two weeks later.
0: Okay, close enough. <laughs> yeah. <All right. laughs> and then you got your two sisters identified as Peanut and Gwen, and uh, of course your stepfather, grandparents. And then there's like Aunt Porch. Um, she's this colorful character who uh, you obviously uh, love very much. And Aunt Porch seems kind of fabulous when she drives down later in her convertible to see Uncle Ike.
1: <laughs> well, she was like a total modern woman who took control of her life. I mean, she is, I mean, if you looked up, you know, strong, independent woman in the dictionary, her picture would be listed there for further clarification. She was that. And I loved her. I mean, she was, she was very feminine and very powerful and she really didn't spare your feelings. You know, truth was really important to her. And I latched on to her big time.
0: Yeah. And and there's a there's a scene later in the book where he's uh, she gets involved with uh, your stepfather's um, uncle if that's right if I'm remembering that right or maybe oh, your yeah. brother and <laughs> yes and you don't your mom doesn't even know this has been happening and she tries to tell your mom like oh watch out for. Ike, he's, you know, he's no good. He's just a womanizer. You'll never have a future with him. And she says, I don't care. That's not what I'm looking for. <laughs> and
1: he was honest with me. It was so <laughs> funny because I can remember the conversation clearly because she knew who she was and she said, and I even understood that. And she, I clearly, she said, she said, you know, I know what I'm dealing with. She said, you mate with a cheetah in the wild. You don't try to take it home and domesticate it. <laughs> <laughs> and basically that's what she, she knew what she was dealing with.
0: Uh-huh, fair enough. And now uh tell us about Mr. Willie. Mr. Willie is like a, this really crucial
1: uh, figure in your childhood. Yeah, um he well he was a co- he was a compilation character, he was two characters. Uh one of them was blind, and he actually lived next to us when we lived between a penitentiary and the junkyard in East Baltimore. And he uh, oh my god, he was just such a fascinating person because. He was, it was a time when, you know, the black population went under extreme urbanization. I mean, we went from being very rural peasant people to very urban people. And he was a root doctor that knew all these traditions. And he was the first one who hinted to me that I was gay and that it was okay.
0: How did he do that?
1: Um, He just... He just called me a special kind of boy. And I remember something he said to me that sticks with me today. And I think it's really important for anybody, but particularly us from the LGBT community is like, he said something and my grandmother used to say it too, was he said, don't explain yourself, be yourself and let that be the explanation. You know, you didn't, you don't owe anyone an explanation. And that really struck me struck me, although it's not in the book, I eventually would move to an all-white school and all my white friends to this day would always say, Dwayne, you were aggressively yourself and you didn't apologize. You never came into the room apology first. You just came in who you were. But he really, uh, in some ways, uh, growing up, Brad prepared me for dealing with the gay because I had things to support me, to say stuff like that.
0: And how was your family with your, you know, with your homosexuality? It seems, I remember there's a scene early in the book where, um, the, uh, drug addict, uh, brother, uh, brother or uncle of your stepfather, I guess it's his brother. He was brother. Yeah. Alex. And he is, he's just like, you know, he's going through withdrawal, but somehow he comes and reads your beads, uh, so to speak.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, and it was so funny because he, that was the first time I ever heard the F word, you know, it was, um, and, you know, and it was so funny because ironically, a few minutes later, the police would be busting down the doors and taking him away because he committed some crime. But, you know, I was someone else low on the podium, totem pole, so he had to pick out. But my grandparents were really accepting, so much so that years later, when I took my boyfriend home, uh, I told my boyfriend, you know, my Grandparents, know, but we're not sleeping in the same bed on the, in their house. I'm just not doing that. And to my surprise, my grandparents came to me and very sheepishly and innocently say, i and very proudly, they said, well, we just wanted to let you know that we made the bed for both of you upstairs. So we want you to be together. And it, I was like, oh, my God, it was way too much more. It was beautiful, actually. Uh-huh. It was more acceptance than I was. <laughs> more than you were, were ready for? <laughs> From older Black people of that time period, I was not prepared.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think sometimes we think that people in past generations were more homophobic, but they weren't necessarily. It was just like, you know.
1: Yeah. I think people knew. I mean, my grandmother didn't understand. And one of the things she said to me that I still use to this day, she said, Dwayne, I don't understand it. You know, but you don't have to understand why a bird sings to enjoy its song. And she said, I enjoy your song.
0: Wow, that's beautiful.
1: Never forgot that.
0: I want to ask you about one more character, Miss Penny. She's alluded to later, but I didn't meet her when you did. So who was Miss Penny and what's why was she so important in your life?
1: Oh, you know what? She would be considered homeless today, but back then we called people like that bag lady. And... We had taken something from the junkyard, and she said, it's mine. She said, I need it more than you. And I don't know all of her story, but she's the one who actually almost gave an adult narrative to what I was seeing during the riots. Because, you know, she didn't speak to us like we were children. She just did not. And she was a fascinating character, just she carried a gun when because, you know, Baltimore is dangerous. So she carried a gun when she was rummaging through the junkyards of Baltimore. She was just a very fascinating character. I, I really loved who she was.
0: So there was this, there was this reckoning going on in the 1960s about social inequities, especially race-based ones. And I'm curious how you think that reckoning was similar to, and, and also different from what's been going on in America since the killing of George Floyd in
1: 2020 well actually to be honest, I actually think it's pretty much the same. I mean we've we've advanced but you know in any advancement some people are left behind um I think 1968 and now are very similar, very, very similar. I mean the turmoil uh just it was just just so much upheaval. Um, what I think is different now in some ways, some of the racism that i ran into was innocent not really hate based what i find find now is that we're really found find i find that people regardless of race even homophobia um they're just entrenched you know people have stopped li- listening and their opinions are be- are bigger than their facts it's very i think it's in some ways worse now i mean i still really have hopes for our country because this is what happens, be, you know, you know, before big changes. I mean, a lot of people are really upset that, and I, I write this in the book. Um, one of the things I find out a lot of the mainstream is afraid of because groups that these people looked down on before and walked on, people who were once their floors are now their ceilings, and people don't like that. So I, this is when I think it was more dangerous. Like in 1968, it was very clear that blacks were the floor in America. And now, and for that matter, gay, gay Americans, LGBT community as well. And now we're their ceilings and they don't like that. And, you know, I don't know what we're going to do about it, but to me, that's what the big difference is.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's a, that's an interesting observation. Cause you know, I have this, I think you and I are very close to the same age, I was born in 57 and it seemed to me, of course, you know, we were kids then too, but I had this feeling like, you know, Berkeley was going through desegregation when I was a kid, you know, uh, earlier than some of the other school districts where we were in our bubble in the Bay area. But, um, it seemed like in the seventies, wow, the things were like, things were improving somehow. And then with, you know, without really paying attention, just going on with my life, all of a sudden I wake up and go, oh, this is, this is terrible. This seems like worse than it was in 1972 or whatever, but that's, you know, that's my, that's my perception from my bubble, and I would tend to agree. Then it like it went up and down. There was it was a little better for a while, then it went back down.
1: Yeah, but I also think now, I mean, it's either going to get really, really bad, or we're going to go through a four or five years, and we're going to come through even better because demographics are working against this group or trying to do things, and I think that's why they're as ruthless as they are now because time is not on their side. You know, I mean, that's why we see all of this. The younger kids, you know, you could say whatever you want about them. One thing I do like about them, especially in regards to born again Christian, they truly are not as judgmental as the people who claim religion. Yeah, I mean, they still have their own little things, but I think when they start coming of age, we're going to see a different world.
0: Let's hope so. I'm crossing my fingers.
1: (laughs) What else do you want to let people know about your book that we haven't talked about already? Well, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to get over my fear of writing. You know, until I moved to Connecticut, I did not learn to read or write until I was eleven years old, and I really was afraid of my writing. And wanted, and you know, a friend of mine told me, "Dwayne, you've always been an open book about your life. Why don't you write one?" And I was always really afraid. I mean, when you don't learn, and especially the process of what I went through to learn to read and write in Connecticut, you know, we were black and we were put in special ed, not because I had any disability. If anybody, uh, uh, any type of learning disability, if anything, Mer- America had a learning disability, you know, but eventually I graduated in the top 10%, perma- 10% of my class. And I said, okay, I could tell a story. Let's see if I can write. That's great.
0: I was going to ask who if you had an intended audience when you wrote this, or you just this was inside of you and it had to come out one way or the other.
1: Well, I, actually, my husband convinced me to write. He said, if you don't like it, you don't ever have to publish it. And then he said something to me. He said, <laughs> I don't mean it as a, a shock. He said, Duane, I just didn't think it was going to be that good. And, and he's <laughs> like my biggest critic. So if he thought it was good, I said, okay, I'm going to self-publish it. Right. After I wrote it, one of the things that was really key for me especially during the 60s, it was a time period to me when those who saw the most were never on the evening news. I saw so, so much. Although I was nine years old, I knew what was going on, but no one ever asked me. And every time I hear about that time period, everything sounded like a lie because I was there. I was in the room when it happened, to quote Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you one more thing and that is uh your choice to
0: uh, only have um only cover the years from 4 to 9 and uh well let me just back up a second. First of all, congratulations on your award for a first novel and what do you think it was that the uh the Indie Book Awards judges uh found they did they say anything to you about why they chose you chose your
1: book? No, they didn't really, but I but I did get feedback from some others. I mean not the other LGBT writers don't write about this it's more I think they were because I stay a child the whole time especially as gay writers we tend to like you know do a little bit of our childhood but the big thing about our writing is coming out and dealing with that and I purposely chose to stay a child one because I was transitioning from black being my primary identity. And I was slowly weaving in the gay part. And I really didn't want to rush that because it was really important that you see a gay black child as a child the whole time.
0: Right. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense to me. And as you wrote in a note to me, even though you feel like, I think you said, you know, I may have had adversity, but I still had, I still had a good childhood.
1: Yeah. And a lot of people are shocked when they read the book and and i had some other younger people say this you know after they read the book they say you made me revisit my childhood because you know we when you grew up in abusive childhood and some of the people said like when we were with our siblings especially if you had abusive abusive parents we had fun and that was the same with my sisters when my stepfather wasn't around and you know violent adults my childhood was good i mean it wasn't it wasn't that all the time it was just When it happened, it was horrendous, but 80% of it was me just being a child, you know, as me and my sisters always like to talk that, you know, we were feral because the adults were so out of control. We were feral (laughs) and it was fun being feral to be perfectly honest.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. That's good. Hey, look, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That was Dwayne Ratliff reading from his award-winning novel, Dancing to the Lyrics. You can find Dancing to the Lyrics on Amazon.com and at independent booksellers. We'll have a link on our site, too, outinthebay.org. You've been listening to Out in the Bay, queer radio and podcast. You can catch up on past episodes, get in touch, and sign up for our email newsletter at outinthebay.org. While you're there, please consider chipping in. Your donation helps us keep bringing you queer voices and stories. Out in the Bay is nonprofit and independent. We get no financial support from the radio stations that air Out in the Bay Weekly, nor from NPR, nor from podcast platforms. We rely on listener support. Just hit the donate button at outinthebay.org. And here's a way you can help that won't cost you a cent. Please let us know where you are and how you're listening to us. Radio, what station, streaming or live, podcast, what platform? Just shoot us an email at outinthebay at yahoo.com. You can also send us show suggestions and comments. Outinthebay at yahoo.com. Big thanks to Brad Payton and Richard Merck of Silicon Valley for their ongoing generous support. And to Susan and Hayward and Keith of Six Pack Foods in Reno, Nevada for their recurring monthly gifts. Join them and join us, if you can, please, at outinthebay.org. We'll thank you on the air only if you say it's okay. We thank KALW 91.7 FM in the San Francisco Bay Area and San Francisco Public Press and its radio station KSFP 102.5 FM for broadcasting out in the Bay weekly. Lucene Mendel edited this week's show and our theme music was written and performed by Holly Mead. Thank you, Lucene and Holly. I'm Eric Jansen. Thanks for joining us. Come back next week, won't you, at outinthebay.org. <music>